If you have a Bible, if you'd please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're continuing in a series called What's Love Got to Do With It? And after my last message, I can't recall who, but somebody came up to me in the congregation and said to me, Pastor, um, when you were reading the scripture today, did you read from your Bible? And I said, yes, I read from my Bible. And they said, now, you told us to memorize this chapter. They said, now, do you know it? And I said, touche. So this morning, this is my second time. Okay, I already had the first service as, as guinea pigs. I'm going to try to recite 1 Corinthians 13 uh, from the NIV 2011 by memory. By God's grace, I'll, I'll, get it, I'll do it well. Um, the scripture is also on the screens. This is the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, there they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now we know in part as only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall know fully. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word once again. Would you speak to us about the relationship this morning between truth and love? We need your spirit's help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're talking about the relationship between truth and love. And as I was preparing for this sermon, as I was studying, as I was praying, I thought about this. Some sermons, intensity-wise, probably have more of the feel of driving a, a Toyota Prius around the parking lot of Whole Foods, you know, just very relaxed, um, you know, good gas mileage. But today, this may or may not, for you, feel a little bit like getting on the Autobahn, in terms of some of the ideas that we're going to be looking at. So I'm going to ask that you would put on your thinking cap this morning because I'm burdened, I'm convicted that we have a loss of truth in our culture, that we have completely separated the ideas of truth and love, whereas the Bible never separates the idea of truth and love. And we need as Christians to know why truth matters and why truth and love cannot be separated. Truth and love cannot be separated according to Scripture. This morning, we're, looking, we're focusing on just one verse, and then we're going to draw out three implications of this one verse. The verse is this. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Three points about the relationship between truth and love. First of all, no place for truth. We live in a culture where there's no place for truth. Secondly, our confusion, our cultural confusion about love. And finally, total truth, the person and work of Christ. I want to start with this. For the last 50 years or so, and you could trace this back a lot longer in American society, there has been a loss and an erosion of truth, particularly moral truth. Now, what's interesting is we live in such an innovative time, right? We all remember the first cell phone we had that all you could do was call people. Remember that those days? And now we have cell phones that can probably run our own lives. And that's all happened in the last 10 years. Uh, Perhaps in our lifetime, we'll see a human being go to Mars. So what's amazing is we have all of these incredible technological medical breakthroughs. And yet there has been a huge loss about simple things like what is right and what is wrong that previous cultures never even questioned. Here's what our society says. Our society says is that the only thing that we know for certain is what science tells us. So the laws of physics, those are true. But of course, our society says no religion could be true. How could a religion be true? We've lost truth, particularly moral truth. Here's an argument that I've heard a lot. I'm sure you've all heard it. The argument goes something like this. Well, you believe in a monotheistic, you believe in one God because you grew up in a monotheistic culture. That's why you believe in God. If you're a Christian, well, you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian culture. Your family was Christian. And if you had grown up in India, for example, you would believe in thousands, maybe millions of gods. Or if you had grown up in Russia, you would, in atheist Russia at least, you would not believe in God, period. So surely that shows that religious beliefs ultimately come down to just culture, right? Just, they're just anthropology. And uh, I imagine many of us have heard that. And even as Christians, we, we can't help but think, you know, how do I respond to that? Um, may, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe I just believe what I believe because of how I was raised and what I was told to believe. That's the conditions that we swim in today. Now, of course, there's another possibility. And that's what the Bible says. And the the other possibility is that one culture is right and one culture is wrong. And that there is just one God and that the culture that believes there isn't a God is wrong and that the culture believes that there are many, many thousands of gods is wrong. That's entirely possible. But in order to do that, you'd have to look at the different belief systems and say, okay, I'm going to evaluate these. I'm going to say, does this fit with reality? Does this fit with truth? But we live in a, in a time, in a culture, where we usually don't go that far. We usually simply think, oh yeah, maybe I just believe what I believe because it's what I've been told how I was raised. Let me give you an example. Um, after the horrible uh, tragedy in Orlando, you know, as I, as I was listening to news coverage, media coverage, I could have missed it, but I don't think I did. I didn't hear the word evil used at all. You know, the forgotten word of our culture is, and I've, I've jumped ahead a, a slide here or so, but the, the forgotten word of our culture today is the word evil. Uh, I heard descriptions of what happened in Orlando as tragic, 
as horrific. And of course, it is tragic and horrific. Uh, But what I didn't hear was uh, a news outlet, a media source saying that what happened was, was evil. And because we've lost this concept of absolute truth, of non-negotiable truth about moral issue, we, moral issues, we, we struggle to talk about these things. We know they're horrible, we hate them, but we struggle to use, to find the right words to talk about them. So when a tragedy happens, we hear language like um, the perpetrator was pathological, mentally ill, socially maladjusted, radicalized, ideologically brainwashed. And maybe all of those things are true to some degree or another. But what happened in Orlando was morally wrong. It was evil. The perpetrator is morally culpable for his actions. And because as a culture, we've lost a concept of truth and we've lost a concept of right and wrong that what you will often see is our culture resorts to describing things with medical terminology instead of moral terminology. Because medical terminology is the closest thing that we feel comfortable saying about what's right or wrong. I'll give you another example. Let's say I was to go to a college professor who happened to be an atheist. And uh, this college professor is a, a good moral person. He or she is uh, a morally upright person who doesn't cheat and pays their taxes, is very intelligent, Ph.D. And I say to the college professor, I say to them, I have a question for you. Here's my question. Was the Holocaust wrong? Was the Holocaust evil? Now, the professor is, you know, unless we're buddies or something, is going to look at me with indignation. How could you ask me that? Of course I believe that the Holocaust was evil. Of course I believe that. And if I were to ask this follow-up question, though, well, on what basis do you believe that? On what basis could you say that killing, genocide, what happened in the Holocaust is evil? And the person may maybe respond something like, well, we just know it is. We just know it's wrong. But what's the basis? Again, I would ask the same question. On what moral basis are you making that claim? And ultimately, if you push back far enough, there is no moral basis. Because if the only thing that exists is a cold universe filled with stars and matter, the universe frankly doesn't care whether someone lives or dies. So there is no moral basis to say whether the Holocaust or something like that was evil. There's an author named Nancy Piercy. I I have a quote on the screen for you who says this. She says, if you press any set of ideas back far enough, eventually you reach some starting point. Something has to be taken as self-existent, the ultimate reality and the source of everything else. Every system of thought begins with some ultimate principle. If it does not begin with God, it will begin with some dimension of creation, the material, the spiritual, the biological, or the empirical, or whatever. In other words, she's saying, look, there's a foundation for every belief system, every worldview. And if you lack a But if you lack God as your foundation, then ultimately you lose a basis for morality. So there's a book, some of you have read it, The Brothers Karamazov um, by Dostoevsky. And he says this, he says, if you take God out of the equation, 
If God does not exist, everything is permitted. And we may not like that. We may not want to hear that. We want to say, really? Come on, everything's permitted? But he was right. He was a brilliant man. He realized that if you take out God, if you take out a moral foundation, then ultimately everything is permitted. And you know what ultimately everything is reduced down to? Everything's reduced down to what Friedrich Nietzsche realized. He was ahead of his time. He lived in the 1800s. He said, listen, if you take God out of the equation, there's no more basis for morality. There's no more basis for how you treat me and how I treat you. And so ultimately, everything comes down to power or the will to power. Nietzsche said that ultimately what runs the world is just power. Basically, whoever's got the biggest gun and can tell people what to do is the people who are in charge. And sadly, the Nazis commandeered. They took his, his own writings as part of their propaganda in World War II to justify their actions because basically what they were doing was completely evil. But they... Their excuse was, well, it's whoever's, whoever's the most powerful. So we've lost truth in our culture. We've lost an ability to call one thing right and one thing wrong, even though we all intuitively know that some things are right and some things are wrong. Kids, some of the kids who are present today, you don't have kids club. If you hit your brother or sister, you know it's wrong, okay? Now, some of you are like, I'm going to do it anyway, but don't do it because you know it's wrong. You know you shouldn't. A child knows that. We know from the beginning, we're, we're given these moral intuitions from God. We know that it is wrong, but, but yet we've lost it. We've lost the basis. We've grown in all these other ways of our society, but we've lost our moral foundation. Well, there, we live in a society with no place for truth, but there's also a huge confusion about love these days. And here's what's happened in our, in our culture. We've lost truth, and we think that even though we, don't, we can't agree on truth anymore, we can split an atom, but we may not be able to agree on what's right or wrong. We think, well, that's okay. Because you can still love somebody, right? Loving somebody is easy. But the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that truth and love are always connected. Okay? You cannot truly love someone without knowing the truth. And knowing the truth can only lead to to truly loving someone. Here's the modern uh, mantra of our, of our day, as well as the modern attitude of our day. The modern mantra of our day is be true to yourself, okay? Be true to yourself. YOLO. Or, as a teen came up to me after the first service, said, Josh, nobody says YOLO anymore. I'm always behind. I'm always behind. I'm a youth pastor. I'm still behind. They say, look, it's not YOLO anymore. It's you do you. You guys know this? It's you do you. Apparently, it's what you say on the college campus now. You say, hey, I'll do what I do. You do you, okay? So it doesn't make sense really to me, but I guess that means you do whatever you want and I'll do whatever I want, all right? It's be true to yourself. That is America 2016. That's our mantra, okay? Our attitude is don't tell me how to live my life and I won't tell you how to live your life. And we think well, surely this is the most loving thing to do, right? Isn't it intolerant and bigotry and whatever to tell somebody how they must live their life? Is this attitude really the most loving one? Well, the Bible says no. The Bible says this is not the most loving attitude that we can have. That's not the right way to love. And either the culture's right or the Bible's right, but they're both not right. The verse that we saw today says, love does not delight in evil, 
but rejoices with the truth. In other words, love is always on the side of truth. Love always stands for truth. And in fact, you can't have real love without truth. And you can't really understand truth without love. Let me give us uh, another example of this. Let's take the idea of religion and God. Okay, these are obviously touchy subjects. Some some of you come from homes. You're not allowed to talk about God around the, uh, you know, dining room table when when it's a holiday or something like that. And these are the ultimate questions, right? Is there a God? Is one religion true? And basically, our modern society says this. Our modern society says that we should respect the religious beliefs of every person. And by the way, the Bible does affirm that. We should be respectful and loving and kind. The Bible never says be belligerent or coercive or anything like that. Yes, we should be respectful. But this is what our culture says. It says, respect the religious belief of every person, but also never question someone's religious belief or their beliefs about the big questions of life. In other words... um, You should respect someone's beliefs, but you should also never really challenge someone's beliefs, okay? If someone believes that uh, the world was created by a giant spaghetti monster, I know that's silly, but let's just say that's what someone believed, we're called to say, okay, that works for you, you do you, and um, I'll respect that. I won't question that. Is that really the most loving, loving thing to do? Well, consider this. Um, Here's an argument about God. Somebody says, you know what? I'm not sure there's a God. So let's take the example of God. Somebody says, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, consider this. It's actually impossible to disprove the existence of God. You know that? Think about it. How would you, how would a person go about disproving God? Well, you say, well, we've never seen God. I've never seen a picture of God. I've never met God. I know of no scientific measurement that can detect God. So therefore, there must not be a God. And of course, the response is, is your God really so small that you think that the only kind of God that could exist would be one that you could detect or one that you could see? Are you telling me you can categorically prove that God doesn't exist? And of course, every philosopher who believes anything says, of course, that's silly. You cannot disprove the existence of God. Everybody, by the way, in the philosophy world agrees with that, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, not atheist. So you say, well, what does that mean? That means there may be a God. If it's impossible to prove that there isn't a God, that means there may be a God. And if there may be a God, isn't it worth your time to check out this possibility as to whether or not this God exists? Is it really that big of a risk to spend the time to study various religions, particularly Christianity, and read the Bible and to say, okay, if this is real, I want to know, I want to check this out for myself. You know, we have this notion that never challenging someone is the most loving thing, that, that as long as I just respect what you believe and you respect what I believe, that's really the most loving thing. But deep down, you know what, you and I, we know that's really not true. I'm going to give you an example as to why. Let's say you have a friend or you have a loved one or you have a spouse or you have a child who is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction, one of those two things, or, or really an addiction of any sort that's destructive. Would you really say, well, the most loving thing I can do is to respect that person and to honor the way they want to live and they want to get high and drunk all the time? So who am I 
to say to them, don't do that? Well, look, if you do that, you're a terrible friend. You're a terrible friend. You know what a good friend does? A good friend says, I'm going to bust in your house if I have to, and I'm going to pour all the alcohol down the drain, or I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to have an intervention. I'm going to do whatever I can because you're destroying your life. You're destroying your family. Maybe you're destroying your marriage. And I, as your friend, even though you may hate me right now, I'm going to do whatever I can to stop you from the behavior that you're committing. That's love. When you know somebody's destroying themselves and you do whatever you can in your power to stop them, that's love. It's not to simply say to a person, well, do whatever you want and I respect that. We know deep down that that is not what true love is. True love is to get into the mess. It's to say to the person, you may not even be able to see this right now because this addiction has such a control on you. You think you're in control. You're really not. But I'm going to do everything in my power to pull you out of this harmful lifestyle. And there are so many destructive addictions in our world today. And as brothers and sisters, we actually have to know each other well enough to, to know if someone's struggling. And if you are struggling, I hope you would go to someone, tell them, reach out for help. And the loving thing is to do is to say, look, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes as your brother, as your sister, to help you escape this terrible addiction. You see, what the Bible says is the most loving thing to do is not simply to respect another person's beliefs, but rather, if another person's beliefs are, are destructive, if another person's actions are destructive, if they're harmful, or if they're wrong, then isn't the most loving thing to do to go to them in a respectful way and say, look, I want to engage with you about what you think about God. I want to talk to you about how you're living your life. I want to talk to you about whatever moral compass or lack of moral compass that you're currently living in your life. And I want to share with you about what God has done for me. You see, if you lose truth, you lose love. You can't have one without the other. Our culture thinks you can, but you really can't. Let me give you two quotes about why truth and love always have to be together. From Warren, uh, first is from Warren Wearsby a pastor. Warren Wearsby says this, truth without love is brutality. Okay, it's just cold. It's no love, no relationship there. Just sort of believe whatever I believe. By the way, that's never been Christianity at its best. Christianity at its best has never viewed people as projects. People are people. All right, I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm not just going to tell you what to believe. Christianity has never been at its best a coercive religion. We're a religion that says, um, we want you, I, I, I want you to believe this. I'll do whatever, I'll tell you whatever I need to tell. I want you, I'm praying for you. It's never, you have to believe this. So truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Why is it hypocrisy? Because that's like saying to the drug addict, well, I love you and you're just ruining your life and you're destroying your family, but I'm not gonna do anything. You see the hypocrisy there to say you love a person? but you're not actually loving them? Keller says this, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. And this morning, God gave me one more. This is Josh Desch. It's not nearly as good. Truth without love is coercion. It's coercion. It's just do what I tell you. But love without truth is cowardice. 
It's cowardice. You're not really saying to a person um, the hard thing that they need to hear. Truth and love. The Bible says they're married together. They're indivisible. They're inextricable. You cannot separate them. We need both. Well, where do we find perfect love and perfect truth? Well, now we move to total truth, the person and the work of Christ. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Where do we see truth and love perfectly connected, perfectly expressed, the perfect embodiment of someone who speaks truth with love and who loves but always loves in a way that's truthful? It's Jesus. Think about Jesus. Think about the way that Jesus interacted with people. Take the woman at the well in John 4. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. Many of you are familiar with this story. She's going to draw water. She can't believe that Jesus as a Jew would talk to her as a woman, as a Samaritan. He begins to talk to this woman. She's about drawing water. She's, She's lived a bad life. She's one of those people, you know, I've met people like this who said, no, you don't know the life I've lived, Pastor. You don't know, okay? Met people like that, said that to me. Basically, they're kind of saying like, too late for me. This is kind of what that woman was saying to Jesus. I've lived a hard life. And Jesus knew the truth about her. He said, look, you're not living with your husband. You've had five husbands already. She'd lived a life of sin. All of us have lived a life of sin, though. And then he spoke to her with truth. He, he spoke to her with truth. He addressed her where she was, but then he spoke to her with love as well. He said, listen, I can give you water that will make you never thirst again. I want you to drink that water. I'm the one who can offer it. It was perfect truth, perfect love together. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, he said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus on the cross is the perfect expression of truth and love. He faced the truth of our sin with the amazing love of his death on the cross. Jesus is total truth. He is the embodiment of what it means for truth and love to come together. I want to end by giving a modern-day metaphor for these two things, truth and love. I want to end by a modern-day metaphor. Um, All of us are obviously familiar with cancer. It is such a horrible, terrible disease that affects so many people, even those who survive cancer. uh, It's a a terrible fight to, to get cancer, even if you survive. Obviously, a lot of people do not survive from cancer. And uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that if someone were to to find the cure for cancer, particularly a cure that would cure all cancers, it would perhaps be the greatest discovery in human history, or certainly among the top, if a person were to find the cure for cancer. Now, what would be the most unloving, selfish, hateful thing that a person could do if they found the cure for cancer? Obviously, it would be to not share it. Imagine if a person found the cure, cure for cancer and they're watching people around them who are trying homeopathic methods and chemotherapy and people are dying and someone has a cure for cancer and they don't share that cure with others. That would be the most selfish, hateful thing that we could possibly do. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says 
that every single person has cancer. But it's worse than liver cancer, and it's worse than pancreatic cancer, and it's worse than any kind of cancer that a person can have. It's called cancer of the soul. And it's a cancer that will leave you separated from God for all eternity and the selfishness that you have desired your whole life if you don't surrender your life to faith in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. We all have cancer. And the message of the Bible is that the gospel is the good news that Jesus had, that God has sent a cure. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's so amazing about this cure is that even if we die in this life, and we will die in this life unless Jesus should return before we die, even if we die in this life, we, we will go on and live forever with God, with each other, in eternal bliss. That's how powerful of a cure this is that one day we'll have a resurrection body and live forever with God. That's the message of the Bible. Question for all of us today is, have you received the cure? Have you received the cure for the cancer that affects every part of our being? You know, every single day we wake up, we roll out of bed, and we remind the world that we're sinners. I don't know how long it takes you to commit your first sin in the morning. Some of you are on the 30-minute plan. Somebody like me, I'm more on like the five-minute or less plan, okay? Some of you, you're more godly. Maybe it takes you an hour or two hours. But every day we sin. Even if we, had one, even if we only had to answer for one day before God, it would still be enough. Pick out your best day and put it before God. It's still not good enough because it's still filled with sin and rebellion. We need a cure. Jesus is the cure. The gospel is the cure. So if we know this good news, how can we not share it? How can we not tell it to others? How can we not, even with the pressures of a culture that says, you're bigoted, you're intolerant, you're not respectful to others, how can we not, in a loving, kind respectful way say to people i want to talk to you about what's changed my life it's the power of the gospel it's god i want to talk to you about that i want to tell you about that there's no other message like that there's no other cure for this disease that's the good news that's truth and love together let's pray father we thank you that you have revealed both truth and love to us. Lord, that you do not leave us in our sin and harshness, but rather you've confronted our sin with the love and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us a burden to spread this message to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.